Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. It's a very quiet morning in this house. After nine weeks, my daughters are back at school and I think we're all a bit relieved. Hope your day is going well so far, whatever you are up to as we move fully into spring. I have to say I'm really cheered by the vivid blanket of daffodils in my local park and the lengthening light in the evenings. And I'm holding on to whatever uh, I can we know we're going to be in this probably till May and it is a bit depressing at the moment. But anyway, hope you're doing well, whatever you are doing today. Now, we're going to bring you a conversation in this episode with Waterford woman Megan Nolan, who in recent weeks has had a rave review from The New York Times and several other prestigious publications for her debut novel, Acts of Desperation. We'll be discussing the book on our book club soon, but when we got the opportunity to talk to Nolan about a novel which has been so widely acclaimed we couldn't say no. Before I bring you the conversation, let me read you a little bit of this story. It's the story of a dysfunctional relationship and a young woman's self-destruction. I was, have to say, quite moved by the writing. So here's a little bit of a taste of it before we hear from Megan herself. Love was the final consolation would set ablaze the fields of my life in one go, leaving nothing behind. I thought of it as a force which would clean me and by its presence make me worthy of it. There was no religion in my life after early childhood and a great faith in love was what I had cultivated instead. Oh, don't laugh at me for this, for being a woman who says this to you. I hear myself speak. Even now, after all that took place between us, I can still feel how moved I am by him. Kieran was that downy, darkening blonde of a baby just leaving its infancy. He was the most beautiful man I'd ever seen. None of it mattered in the end. What he looked like, who he was, the things he would do to me. To make a beautiful man love and live with me had seemed, obviously, intuitively, the entire point of my life. My need was greater than reality stronger than the truth, more savage than either of us would eventually bear. How could it be true that a woman like me could need a man's love to feel a person, to feel that I was worthy of life, and what would happen when I finally wore him down and took it? Here she is, the author of those words, Megan Nolan. Megan, thank you very much for coming on the Women's Podcast. Now, tell us about, first of all, your childhood growing up in Waterford, because you've described yourself as quite lucky growing up as a child. Yeah, I had a, I really had a very blessed childhood. Uh, my parents are both incredible people and uh, they're both very creative people in, in their different ways. My dad is a writer, he's a playwright and a director, and he kind of makes audio documentaries as well. And um I grew up with him and my mom Sue in in uh, they were separated so in in separate houses and my mom's a very uh free-spirited woman very uh, a big inspiration to me in my life and uh 
just a really wonderful person to grow up with. And she was heavily involved with uh, Spree in Waterford, the festival. And uh, so, yeah, I think I just had a wonderful atmosphere at home with the two of them. But also Waterford is just, I think, a brilliant place for a creative young person. There's a really strong sense there that you don't have to be a kind of special person to be involved with the arts or with creativity. You know, everyone, every child that I knew in Waterford was involved in some way with Waterford Youth Arts or Little Red Kettle or some sort of project. Um, I just think it's a brilliant way to grow up like that. And your mum being a free spirit, because I saw you tweeting, I think it was today or yesterday, that, you know, you, you missed your mum and dad and you particularly missed staying up till four o'clock in the morning, singing your favourite songs with her. And I just yeah. thought, what a great relationship to have with your mum. Yeah, we have this, because uh, <laughs> she's a great singer and she always has been. And, uh, and you know, not to toot my own horn, but I've got a, <laughs> I've got a nice singing voice as well. So, uh, yeah, whenever I go home, we always, uh, you know, get out the wine and put on our favourite albums, a lot, lot of Leonard Cohen and uh, and just sort of belt away until the wee hours. But, you know, my stepdad, who doesn't drink, is upstairs sort of listening to this all the time. But, but yeah, I really miss that sort of stuff because uh, usually, you know, pre-COVID times, I'd be home maybe five or six times a year. So I was home a lot, really, but before this. So I do miss them a lot. It sounds like, um, you know, the way people say, oh, mums and daughters can't be friends, but it sounds like a friendship as, as well as a mother-daughter relationship. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, I we had our difficult times when I was a teenager. I was awful to my mum, I think. And a lot of girls, I think, tend to take it out in their mums rather than their dads. I, I definitely had that tendency. And because I probably spe- spent a little bit more, I think I spent uh, four nights of the week with my mum and three with my dad. So there was that little bit of you know, weekend parent gets the fun side of you and your mom gets all the the, the daily kind of crap from you. Um, so I think I definitely took out my teenage angst on her a bit when I was when I was that age. But then when I got into my 20s, we, you know, developed a new relationship together. And now I, you know, we, yeah, we are definitely great. The, the, the greatest of friends now. Good. And you also describe yourself as bookish. So books were a big thing always growing up. I mean, you were mad into reading and books. Yeah. Yeah, I have this memory of, uh, I don't know how old I would have been, but uh, in the book centre in Waterford, my dad would bring me there um, and buy me books on weekends. And I remember I must have been pretty small because I was reading the um, Mr. Men books. And when when my dad was, he was chatting to someone, you know, my dad knows everyone in town and he was chatting away to someone and I was holding the one that he was going to buy for me. And I managed to read all of it in the time that he was having the chat and had to make him go back and get another one. So yeah, I was always uh, mad into books, yeah, and just found it, because I was quite a, I mean, I wasn't totally socially awkward or anything, but I was a bit of a gawky kid, you know, and uh, I found books a great place to relieve myself of that. Hmm. Um, Now tell me about going to Trinity, which was always a fixation that you had. It was a thing, a goal, those things. I want to go to Trinity. Um, I had that a bit myself, actually, so I kind of relate, but I never actually got there. You did actually (laughs) get there, but not for very long. No. Tell us about that sense of, you know, you mentioned kind of the mad teenage years, which I think everyone kind of relate to, and then achieving the goal that, that you'd wanted, but it not panning out the way you thought it might. Yeah, so I had gone to, I I have a strong memory of um, when my dad, I think he must have had a play on up in Dublin or something and I come up with him and I remember him walking, you know, we just went for a walk through the campus and I remember I must I must have been only eight or nine or something and I thought, you know, this is heaven, everyone sitting around reading books under trees and it was just so glorious to look at and I thought, you know, I'm going to come here. Um, and yeah, and in my teen years, I even even when I wasn't, 
great at school. I, I always was good at, you know, good at my good subjects. So I thought I'll probably be able to scrape by and get in. So yeah, I did scrape by and get in just by the skin of my teeth. And I wasn't able to do English, which is what I wanted to do and what I probably should have been doing. Um, and I ended up doing film studies in French. And uh, I just wasn't very good at, at, um, at the French, really. The film studies was great. I loved that. But um, I was I was rubbish at French and I just I, I, I'd come into it as a sort of B student, you know, like, OK enough at it, but not very good. And then um, when I realized I wasn't very good, it just was this massive crisis of ego, really, and uh, very upsetting to find that I wasn't as clever as I maybe had thought I was at one point. And I think I, I was just in a bit of denial about it at first. So for, for a few months, I was still there, still going to classes, but just very slowly realizing that I wasn't up to scratch. And then I just suffered this total, total ego collapse where, where I, I thought, well, if I can't do this, I don't know what on earth I can do. So it was, it was pretty devastating. And when I saw people who were thriving there, you know, the kinds of people who were really confident, really good at, um, you know, the Phil and the Hist societies where they would do debating and <laughs> and I, I went to one of those because I quite liked debate in school and I thought maybe I'll be good at this. But then when I went to see them, they were just so, they were like, you know, like they, they were like decades old politicians. They were so good. You know, they were, they were really just so fluent in the world in a way that I wasn't. So I found it uh, very disconcerting, very disturbing to find that I wasn't as independent and I wasn't as worldly as I thought I was when I was a teenager. So was that a bit of a, a breakdown situation in, in a way when you think back at that time? You know, it's a difficult time anyway, that transition mm. into your early 20s, you know, late teens. Yeah. Um, you'd kind of, I suppose, disappointed yourself or what you thought you were didn't turn out to be to be yeah. all that. Is that, that the kind of thing? How did you react to that? Yeah, I just, um, I, I'd always thought of myself as a clever person, you know, and a, and a person who could figure out situations easily. Because that was my experience as a teenager was that, you know, you might get into some mess or trouble or whatever, and, and I would always be able to sort of figure my way out of it. And then when that didn't transpire in Trinity, um, yeah, I did. I, I mean, I wouldn't call it a breakdown insofar as I didn't um, stop functioning. But um, but yeah, it was it was a massive, uh, you know, it was a catastrophe in terms of my plans for myself, certainly, because obviously I'd expected to be there for four years and then you find yourself, you know, dropped out thinking, well, I don't, I guess I just have to make money and I don't know where that's going to come from and scrabbling around to find little bits of piecemeal work here and there. So it was um, a crisis of my identity, definitely, I would say, you know, that I thought I was this clever, urbane sort of person and then I wasn't, you know. Yeah. Um, now let's talk about acts of desperation. Um, I was saying to you earlier before we started recording that our book club is going to be discussing the book in a few weeks and we have this very strict rule that we're not allowed to talk about the book before. <laughs> but unfortunately, because um, you're on, I've already broken that by tweeting how much I love this book. It's uh, <laughs> I, it's one of those books that I think people are just going to inhale. You know, it's um, it's I felt like reading it like I just felt how real it was. It felt like picking up someone's diary or just reading something that just felt so authentic and 
Uh, like I could slip into the life of the character so easily. Anyway, for there's so many things in it. There's so many insights into human nature, insights into being a young woman and being lost and all those things that just resonated a lot with me. And I think even for people who it doesn't necessarily resonate with, you can see the truth in it. So mm. I, I'm, I'm afraid my book clubbers are going to hate me, but I had to give you all those compliments about it. Now, it took you three years to write it, Megan. So tell us about that and about your process. If you went to London and that's really where you got um, your writing going there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I came over to London in uh, 2015 and I spent about a year just doing different temp jobs uh I was temping in the Guardian but not in any sort of glamorous way just an admin you know um and then just doing... being in the Guardian surely that's glamorous though even making coffee for people oh totally that, that's why I went there you know I mean it didn't pay any but in fact it paid a lot worse than most of the places I could have been temping but you know you wanted to be in the building and see all the people and kind of see how things work as well it was really it was really interesting even though I was only um you know doing accounts or whatever it was I was doing that day uh but yeah so I was temping the first year I wasn't writing loads. I was writing for, or I wasn't writing for publication loads. I was doing quite a lot of performance stuff. So um, friends of mine over here, a lot of them are artists and they're putting on events in galleries. So I would write pieces to be uh, to be read aloud. And then it would have been, I would say late 2016 is when I started the book. And that's also roughly the time I started writing freelance journalism as well. Um, so I had this lucky, really, I mean, the most lucky coincidence that my, my agent, Harriet Moore, who's a great friend of mine as well, happened to be at this uh, performance event that I was reading an essay at. And she saw me read and then had a chat with me afterwards, asked me to send her some work. And then she signed me after that. And on, on the basis of very little, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd had virtually nothing published before. But um, she's just been a brilliant support and encouragement throughout this. And she and I started discussing ideas for books. And um, I began it then in September of 2016. So I went to Athens. I'd gotten this uh, this grant from the Ted and Mary O'Regan Bursary in Waterford, which supports Waterford artists. And uh, they gave me, I think it was it was either 12 or 1500 euros. I can't remember which one it was, but um, I knew in London that would last you a month, maybe, you know, at most. Yeah. And uh, and I thought, because I was only kind of casually subletting, I thought, you know, I may as well get out of here and, and make it somewhere um, I can sublet for 250 quid a month rather than 600 a month as it is in London. So I went to Athens and that's where I started the book then. Why did you choose Athens? It was really arbitrary. I think I'd, um, there's a friend of mine, Erica, who she's an artist that she's from Athens and she lives in London, but she splits her time. So she's in Athens about four months of the year. And she had said something about it to me and I just liked her vibe and <laughs> and. The sort of, uh, you know, London and any big city is so work driven. And she'd said something to me about the sort of, you know, the atmosphere in Athens being totally different and that people live to be with each other and socialize and have a, a life like that rather than to do with work necessarily. And obviously people have to work, but they, but they don't center their lives around it. And I, I liked the sound of that, you know, and uh, it kind of sat with the way that I feel about the world as well. So I think I chose it because of that. Going back a little bit before writing the book, I'm not sure if it's the same essay that Harriet saw you read, but you'd written about your an abortion you'd had. And that yeah. was kind of a very big moment for you in terms of something you'd written, getting a, a wider audience. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely the first, I think it was the first thing I'd ever written that... Uh, it was it was in the early earlyish days of medium uh where you can you know self publish your essays and so on and I put it on that I'd actually I'd written it to be read aloud I was doing a 
some night in Dublin, a spoken word event. I can't remember what the name of it was now, but um, I had written it to be read aloud at that. And then I had read, read it at this event and it went down well and I was pretty, pretty pleased with it. So I put it up on Medium. And yeah, that was the first time I'd written anything that kind of um, took off in any way or that got shared and people spoke about. And I mean, your your writing sort of in The Spectator and various other places is quite personal and can be quite dark, but also quite funny and darkly humorous too. That's kind of your style. And can you tell me a bit about that personal writing, why that was the kind of um, way you went into at the beginning? And obviously this is your first fiction uh, yeah. book. Um, I think for quite a lot of writers, I mean, if you don't know exactly what you want to do, as in if you don't have a kind of vocation for reporting or, you know, a particular beat as a as a journalist, for instance, as I as I didn't, you know, I didn't have any um, go to area of expertise or anything. It just kind of was an extension of what I was writing in private already. And at a certain point, I thought it was good enough to share with other people. So it wasn't a very considered decision to start sharing myself with the wider world or anything. It was just, uh, you know, I've always I've always written to myself since I was a very small kid. And I've got, you know, I've got stacks and stacks of journals and diaries and notebooks from that time. And I think it was it was, you know, pretty literally just a, an expansion of of what I happen to be doing in private already. So it. It's not something I planned out and I don't know if I would have planned it. And in retrospect, I don't know if it was the right thing to do, but it's how it happened anyway. Mm. Now, the book is a portrayal of a woman in her 20s who's flailing. She hasn't found herself. She's making mistakes and she's in a very, what's the word, I suppose, destructive, dysfunctional relationship with a man. Um, You've described it as a horrid book. I think you were joking. You you know, I think you've said about your family and friends being so happy for you reading the book and now they have to read it. It's quite dark. There's a lot of very uncomfortable scenes and a young woman who's really being treated very badly, treating herself very badly. Um, What kind of feedback have you had on that whole aspect of it? From the wider, from, like, from, from I suppose from family and friends, but also just wider, because for me it resonated a lot. Um, but I just wondered what other people have said. Uh, in terms of the friends and family, my uh, I was expecting and it was the case that both my parents found it hard to read, just because, you know, not not only because the narrator bears similarities to myself, but also just because um, because it is an unhappy book that they were sad to read me creating these uh, unpleasant moments and, you know, this pain. Uh, but they both loved it, you know, like they, they, they were able to have both those feelings, you know, they were able to be upset by it, but also admire it and and appreciate what I was trying to do with it. Um, I think that in terms of the wider audience responses to it that I've had so far, I find that, I mean, this is a generalisation now, but um, men seem to find it more... Uh, kind of insane than women do like a lot of women will say you know it might be an exaggerated version of their experiences but they see something of themselves and you know it might be magnified and because it's a novel it's dramatized of course but they might see something in it that's something they relate to whereas I've had the responses from men tend to be more kind of whoa you know like she's she's really crazy off the rails I don't understand anything about why she's behaving this way and that's not all men obviously but I do find that um I do find that the male responses so far have been more on the side of finding her unrelatable. Yeah, 
I have to say what I what I really I think what enthralled me about it was was seeing the de- a depiction of a female character that is quite in a way out of control, is quite flawed, has a lot going on, is trying to, you know, obviously clearly very intelligent and talented, but just, you know, is really finding life difficult. And it's not yeah. something we see all the time, you know, and I, I think that's what appealed to me, that, that authenticity of a female experience that, I mean, OK, like you say, it's probably exaggerated for a lot of people. But on another way, there are a lot of people who get themselves lost, uh, especially women at that age. And in terms of relationships with men, where they do things that they look back and think, oh, my God, I can't believe I did that. Mm. So that for me was what what felt very um true i suppose yeah i think that you don't have to respond to that megan that's just my little <laughs> no <laughs> that's but just I, my little, um, I do think what you say especially about you know like when you look back on and like it's not even in my early 20s when you look back on even the next year on after a relationship sometimes or a fling or whatever you, you think what you know why was that behaving that way you know i didn't need to to do that and i think a lot of people whether they're whether they're unhappy as people or not, you know, even if they're totally healthy, people can behave in very bizarre, strange ways when they're in love, and that was part of what I was trying to get at with the book. There's a lot of drinking in it too, which I really liked. Yeah, yeah, a lot of boozing. <laughs> and you've re- you wrote a beautiful piece in the Guardian recently about your drinking. Can you just tell people yeah. about that because you kind of equated your various drinking stages with different relationships and. Um, what drinking did for you and the way you describe that is very interesting. Yeah, so I think uh, in that stage of my life when I had dropped out of university and I was working sort of, uh, you know, these these little menial jobs that I was trying to scrabble together enough money to get by, uh, I didn't have a lot. I didn't know what sort of, you know, the point of my life was. I didn't know what I was aiming towards. I didn't know if I'd ever have a job, a proper job again and all that kind of thing. And um, I think it became very easy for me to just make going out the point of life you know and and I was young enough that most of my friends were still in university so it was it wasn't you know unusual for me to be doing this it was it was very normalized because you know people who were between 18 and 21 that is what they do um so I drank a lot when I was that age especially and I found in I find in retrospect the way that colored how I interacted with people in relationships was very you know, very uh, dramatic almost, you know, like it made me into a different kind of person than than I am now or that, than I would have been sober then, uh, where you just behave erratically. Obviously, if you're drinking all the time, it's not even just about when you're drunk. It obviously affects your health and your mental state. You know, it's very, it's a depressive. So, you know, you're you're in a sort of vulnerable state all the time if you are, if you are drunk a lot. So it made me uh, behave in, in a not, uh, not very... Um, healthy way with with men at the time you know just uh just having chaotic sort of relationships uh, so has the drinking calmed down Megan yeah I, honestly I think for me and for most people when you you know I mean I mean this isn't everyone obviously alcoholism is a real thing but I think um for people who aren't alcoholics when you become past 25 the hangovers are too bad you know like you can't um when I was 18 I could drink a bottle of gin every night and, and still be up at nine the next day if I had to be for work Whereas, you know, now I have a bottle of wine and I'm I'm done in for the next day. So I think literally as a matter of physical functionality, it kind of has to calm down most of the time. Mm. I'm going to read you a um, line from a review, a really brilliant review uh, 
kind of dream review really in the Times by journalist Claire Loudon, who says in it, please believe the hype. Please do not roll your eyes and say not another Sally Rooney. Nolan is not another Sally Rooney. She's another seriously exciting writer who happens to be young and female and Irish. Those are broad categories. Um, so I suppose these are like the comparisons to, say, Nisha Dolan or Sally Rooney. And I, I um, feel that you're very different to both of those women. Yeah. I, I love both of those as writers. Mm. But I think your voice is is another voice. Um, and yes, you're young and you're Irish and you're a woman. Does it annoy you or is it good that there is this, that we are in a generation where there's these brilliant young women writers coming through? Um, does it make it easier for you coming on or is it annoying that people are going to compare? Uh, it's not annoying, but I think... Um... As you say, you know, we're we're very different uh, writers, you know, like, but I, I love both um, Sally Rooney and Nisha Dolan. Uh, they're, they're fantastic, obviously, and I'm very happy that they exist and that they've come up in this way and that there's space for them in, in literature. Uh, obviously, my style is super raw and very emotional in a way that neither of theirs is. Um, they're both much more poised writers than I am and they, and, you know, they have a composure that I don't have and that's not to put myself down, you know, they're just different styles. Um it's not, I don't find it annoying. I, I, you know, I, I always knew it would happen if I had the good luck to have any press at all. I knew it would happen. Um, also, because I had seen with Nisha, you know, that, that she had had it. So I knew it would happen. It's flattering, of course, because they're great writers. Uh, I don't think it's the most useful comparison. I do think that, uh, you know, young Irish and woman are not the broad categories you'd struggle to meaningfully compare me to them as writers apart from those identity categories. Um, and I do think that, you know, it's great that we're all being celebrated, of course, but there's not a lot of use to comparing us apart from, um, apart from, you know, I, I understand that in journalism you need to do some comparisons because nobody's heard of me and they've heard of those people. So I understand it. it's fine. You know, I don't mind it. Yeah, but I mean, it just makes me think as you're speaking there, people don't tend to go on about young Irish and male as much. It seems to be a thing when yeah. about women that we want to group you all together. We want to kind of say you're all part of this. <laughs> and I mean, like you say, I'm a journalist. I'm guilty of it myself. And when I spoke yeah. to Nisha, I would have asked Nisha about Sally Rooney. And, you know, yeah. it's kind of one of those things you reach for. But yeah, I mean, I think your styles are very different. But I do think, I mean, I find it quite... Um, not that I can take any pride, but it is great that there's a moment now when Irish writing, whether it's by women or men, seems to be getting this global audience and uh, the the feedback is so good from people who, mm. who they're very Irish uh, writers and you, your experiences and, and your book and also Sally Rooney's and Nisha, it's very Irish, but yet it has this universal appeal. And I think that's quite yeah. exciting. Another uh, thing we always... <laughs> ask women who write as well is about how much and you alluded to it earlier about your own experiences feeding into the book and I'm just wondering um, because there is quite a lot of you in the book did you feel inhibited at all in that um, it, was it were you able to kind of be as free with with the, your writing or did you kind of have to did, did you struggle when you had to hide the things or disguise them and, th- and that kind of thing to because to, fiction is very different obviously to your more straightforward personal writing or did it did it was it easy or easy to do um I think because, because it's not based on a, a real boyfriend of mine it wasn't such a big deal in that way I wasn't um you know trying to dis- disguise someone who was real because because the the character of Kieran in the book is is based on a sort of composite of various men that I might have been with or observed my friends being with. It's not a single individual. So in that way, it wasn't difficult. Um, but yeah, the, the narrator's feelings and, you know, so the events are their own thing because they're fictional. The feelings, on the other hand, are 
more directly me. Um, and they're not direct. They're they're not factual. You know, they're not factual uh, representations of 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 my emotions, but they are based on things that I've felt and then expanded on, obviously. Um, but I didn't. It's only now, really, when it's coming out that you feel those sort of oh God, you know, Dad's going to read this sort of thing. Um, when I was writing it, I don't think you can. You wouldn't be able to write anything if you thought that way about it when you were starting it. You know, if if you thought if you had in your mind my mom and dad and my granny are going to read this, you wouldn't be able to write anything, or I wouldn't anyway. Well, something I haven't asked you about. Did you you were in a band as well in this in this sort of in your twenties? Were you uh, in singing? my teenage years? When I was seventeen, yeah, yeah. yeah. What was that like? I mean, you mentioned your great voice, and I love that you're not mod- you're not humble about it. <laughs> you know, you've a great voice, and you should tell everyone. Um, <laughs> and did you sort of have dreams of being a rock star at one point? No, it was something I totally <laughs> fell into. I uh, I was I, I really liked to I, I DJed when I was a teenager in Waterford. There's a massive techno scene, so a lot of my um, my older brother's friends who kind of became my friends were really into techno. So I ended up going to these parties as a teenager where people had decks, you know, and I learned uh, to, like, appreciate vinyl from them. And so I started DJing when I was about that age, 16, 17. And then Maeve, who's the other woman in the band, uh, happened to see me. uh, She was a friend of my brother's as well, and she happened to see me DJ. And uh, she asked me to start making music with her. So it wasn't anything I'd planned to do. I always loved singing, but I haven't, I really am not a musical person. I couldn't write music. So it was never anything I'd be able to creatively contribute to. It was just, you know, these little skills of mine. I can DJ a tiny bit and I can sing. So it was mainly that. <laughs> and listen, you've spoken so beautifully even today about Waterford. And I've, re- I've read you on, on your home city as well and how much you love it. But you did go away to London. Do you consider London your home now? Or what's your relationship with that city and your relationship with Waterford now? Uh, it's a funny one because obviously because of COVID, I'm here all the time. Whereas before... You know, in in my life before COVID, I was based in London, but I would be elsewhere for a good number of months of the year, you know, maybe even up to like four months of the year, I wouldn't be in London. So even though it was always my base, I didn't really until this year, the pre, you know, 2020, have to consider it my full-time home. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't. Um, in the next, you know, five years, I won't, I won't probably live anywhere else permanently. Um, I can't imagine moving back to Waterford anytime soon. I think I'll probably, um, I was actually thinking about trying to move to New York when COVID happened. So I'll, pro- I'll probably be, be looking into that next, if anything. What a place to be a writer, I think. That would be incredible, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, just before you go, I know it's always uh, when someone's got a book out, but I'm just, I'm being very selfish here. I read your book in like, I think a few hours. So that's not, <laughs> that was not ideal. And I wouldn't recommend people do that. I would just take longer over it, people. Do not just read it, binge it like, 20 million episodes of Married at First Sight, which I'm not comparing your book to, by the way. I've just been addicted to Married at First Sight at the moment. Um, But are you working on another one, Megan? And when can we expect that? Yeah, I am. So it was a two-book deal with Jonathan Cape. So I'm I'm, uh, working on the second one now. Uh, I actually have no idea when it would actually when it would be out in the world, but I'm hoping to submit it by uh, late summer, autumn sort of time. So I think, you know, all going well, maybe probably 2023, realistically. They talk about the difficult second album, and are you having difficult second novel uh, problems, no, or is to be it honest, going it's well? It's such a dream to have the money to be able to write full time that I'm I'm happiest I've ever been because of that. You know, I don't have to do temp jobs anymore to make up the bills. I've got I've got this advance to to write full time, so it's wonderful. I don't I don't expect. Uh, I know the debuts have a certain cultural cachet, and you won't get the same 
notice the next time round necessarily. Um, but that's fine with me, you know, like I, I just want to be able to work. So as long as I can do that, I'm happy. Is it very different or is it um, a similar voice? Oh, totally different. Uh, it's not the, so, you know, active desperation is a one one individual's perspective and a kind of interior monologue. This will be a much broader cast of characters and, a, a, you know, a broader world than, than exists in active desperation. Are you enjoying that? It sounds, well, obviously a bit more yeah. ambitious, but it, a lot more things to handle. and to... Totally. And it's not so emotionally draining because it's not, you know, about personal things like that. Um, obviously, some of it will involve things that, that, that I've felt in the past, but it's not the same. It's not the same thing as writing a narrator who's experiencing things that you've really experienced in the, in the past. So it's a lot of fun, actually, even though it's, it's also <laughs> kind of bleak subject matter as well in a different way. But, but it's, it's a lot of fun because it's more creative and more inventive than I was doing with Act of Desperation. OK, well, that's a bit far away, 2023, but I suppose we'll have to just wait. And in the meantime, <laughs> we can read you in other publications. Where are you writing now at the moment? Uh, so New Statesman is where I have my columns. So that's every two weeks. And then I contribute to The Guardian semi-regularly and uh, New York Times as well. I'll be, I'll be publishing some stuff with them soon. Well, that's great. So your dreams really, I suppose, did come true in the end after, yeah. after a bit of a <laughs> shaky start with Trinity. So <laughs> people can take heart in that. Um, sometimes I think, though, those lost years and those bits where, like, breakdowns, as you said, too strong a word, but identity crises and all those things uh, can be very character building and can, you know, as Nora Ephron said, everything is copy. And, you know, yeah. you've definitely used a lot of that um, to make brilliant art. So... It was all it was all for something in the end anyway. Definitely, yeah. Nothing was wasted, that's that's for sure. Great. Well listen, it's been lovely talking to you, Megan, and the best of luck with everything and congratulations on I'm gonna say it, a brilliant, brilliant book and my book clubbers are gonna kill me. But we'll be discussing <laughs> it in a few weeks, Megan, and they might not all agree with me. It can often that's happen fine. where I love something <laughs> and they tell me that I'm completely wrong. So uh we'll see what happens then. But <laughs> Megan Nolan, until then, thank you very much. Thank you so much. That's it for today. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. If you want to email us, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com or find us on our social channels at IT Women's Podcast. Mind yourselves and I will talk to you next time. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.